In nomine Patris, Fili, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu mudiarbus, sed benedictus fructus entris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris, Fili, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Through the prayers of the Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudetur Jesus Christus. In secula. Welcome to another edition of the Terror of Demons Morning Show. Joined, as always, by co-host Kennedy Hall. Kennedy, how you doing, brother? Wonderful. How are you? Jesus is King. Welcome to the second week of Lent. Mm -hmm. Also, the month of March. Yeah. Month of St. Joseph. Mm -hmm. uh, very important month, indeed. The bulk of Lent, really. We're going to hit, hit Holy Week at the very end of March. And... Uh, Easter is on April 4th. So this week we, we've got uh, some great saints. St. David, I believe he's an Irish monk, if I, if I recall. Blessed Charles the Good. Uh, one of my favorite American saints, St. Saint Catherine Drexel. Uh, St. Casimir of Poland, sound out to the Poles. <laughs> and the great martyrs of the early church, St. Felicitas and Perpetua, on Saturday. There's a great yeah. extant account of these great martyr saints uh, from 203. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the historical context of the first apparition in 1917. I, I've discovered a great deal of incredible providential action that is happening right at the moment of mm -hmm. the first apparition in 1917. And I think especially with Russian history, a lot of Catholics are not aware of some of this stuff. And it's, and it's really incredible uh, when we talk about the conversion of Russia and salvation of their souls, the salvation of all Eastern, Eastern Christians. And what we're going to do, start with, we're going to just do a little bit of Russian Catholic history 101, uh, because this is something that's not known um, very much. Uh, I think, unfortunately, there's also a prejudices that uh, that endure uh, among Catholics uh, and it's on both sides of this schism, but um, Catholics as well. And so what I wanted to do here, um, if I, if my notes will load, looks like they're not going to, I'm going to read them off my phone. Um, so the, the big moment in Eastern Catholic history is when Pope John the Eighth approves the Slavic rite of Cyril and Methodius. So we don't have time to go into all of the controversies that are happening in the ninth century at this time, but essentially the Frankish Empire is fighting over Bulgaria with the Roman Empire of the East, aka the Byzantine Empire, and two saints sort of choose sides and they, they recognize the authority of the Pope. They go to Pope John. They say we, so we're they're, they're translating the, uh, the local language into a new rite, which is something that was far more common in the East than it ever was in the West, because in the West, everybody was barbarians singing around a campfire. They weren't civilized whatsoever. They didn't have cities. They were just tribes of barbarians. So they all gave him Latin, 
They say, hey, we'll just give you like St. Patrick yeah. goes to the Celts. <laughs> They're all just running around druids and whatnot. You know, they are barbarians. And St. Patrick gives them Latin. And then it's through Latin that they can develop the Gaelic script. Hmm. And so this is kind of how this, this is the pattern for the West, because the West was so barbarian, so uncivilized that they gave them Latin first. And Latin then helps them de develop their own written language of their own native tongue. But the rite itself, the cultus, the fundamental foundation of these peoples was the Latin rite, because mm -hmm. it started with the Latin rite. So whereas in the East, you have all these cities who are far more civilized, you have many, you have far, you have a number of different empires, which are mm -hmm. civilized empires, you have the Persian Empire, um, you have these different groups, it's far more civilized in the East, you've got cities. So you have capabilities of going straight to a vernacular rite. And in Cyril of Methodius, Cyril of Methodius, they create a Slavic alphabet, the Cyrillic alphabet, which develops into the Slavic rite, and which is the basis for the entire Eastern, the Slavic Catholic culture that develops, which is the Slavic rite. Now, at this time, the Frankish Empire was was um, was. And this is why the Franks Franks were so disdained by the East because they were so uncivilized and they were ignorant because they were saying things like, "Well, the the." the rite can only be celebrated in three languages, uh, Greek, Latin, or Hebrew. Uh, but that was an ig ignorant statement because even at that time, the rite was being celebrated in all sorts of different languages in the East at that yeah. time. You had Greek, Syriac, and whatnot. Syriac, Gehez, you had Coptic, you had all these different rites already being celebrated for centuries, which no one had ever had a problem with, but it was just simply an imperial imposition. So I just wanted to quickly note that simply because some Catholics even today still think that, uh, you know, you should not have any like vernacular right per se is a problem. It's not, uh, you know, we just have problems with vernacular right in the Latin. You know, we have our own problems over here, but there's a long custom of vernacular rights, which get approved by John the eighth in the ninth century by Cyril and Methodius. That becomes the foundation of the entire Slavic <clears throat> Catholic world. Later, St. Vladimir comes of Kiev. So at this time, Kiev is sort of the dominant sea, which is in modern Ukraine. They come to Constantinople and they see the beauty of the Greek rite and they're converted by this. And they become Catholic. And at this time, there's really no formalized schism doesn't really really concretize until much later. But here's here's the key right here. I'm going to read from my favorite Russian author, who is Vladimir Soloviev. I was going to recommend to everyone, if you're ever interested in reading about the truth of the Greek uh, East-West Schism, I would recommend this book right here. This is called Russian Church and the Papacy. This is an abbreviation of his full work, which is um, you can also, it used to be free online, but I, I linked it on the website, but here's, so here's what happens with St. Vladimir. Um, St. Vladimir converts the Kievans, but here's what happens according to Soloviev. Now Soloviev is, is later. So he's later on. He is just to, uh, so you know who Soloviev is. If you know Dostoevsky and you've read Brothers Karamazov, the characters of Elotius and uh, Ivan, who are the most pious and the most intelligent of the two of all the characters, both those characters are based on real life Vladimir Soloviev, who was a friend of Dostoevsky at this time. So he dies around 1900. Hmm. 
And there is good evidence also that he did die a Catholic, uh, Vladimir Soloviev. So, but Soloviev says this. So right when Slain Vladimir is converting the uh, the Kievans, this is 900s up to 1,000. This is that, that era right at the turn of the millennium. The uh, Here's what Soloviev says, page 48 of the unabridged text. Um, the what happens at, at the moment when Russia was receiving baptism from Constantinople, the Greeks, though still in formal communion with Rome after the temporary schism of Photius, which was during John the 13th. We're not going to get into that. They were already strongly imbued with national particularism, which was fo fostered by the contentious spirit of the clergy, the political ambitions of the emperors and the disputes of the theologians. As a result, the pearl of the gospel purchased by the Russian people in the person of St. Vladimir was all covered with the dust of Byzantium. The bulk of the nation was the bulk of the, here's the key point. The bulk of the nation was uninterested in the ambitions and hatreds of the clergy and understood nothing of the theological quibbles, which were their fruit. The bulk of the nation received and preserved the essence of Orthodox Christianity, pure and simple. That is to say faith in the life of religion formed by divine grace and expressed in works of piety and charity. But the clergy recruited in the early days from the Greeks and the theologians accepted the disastrous inheritance of Photius and Carolarius as an integral part of the true religion. So what he's saying here, and there's great evidence of this truth, because essentially the leadership of the Greeks at this time was split between a, uh, a Catholic faction and what a schismatic faction. They were all in communion with Rome at the time, but there was a schismatic faction right. who wanted to find some way of breaking communion with Rome, find some way of, of subordinating Rome to the East, all sorts of things. And eventually they succeeded. Eventually they, they seized power. But there was always a split among the clergy, and even at this time, the dominant faction was taking control. But the the, the rank and file Catholic among all the East, they don't really care about all these things because essentially, exactly. what what these what these leaders are doing is they're saying literally what they're saying is that because the West has has uh, has no yeast in their Eucharist, hmm. we're going to strip it from the blessed from the tabernacle and trample it in the ground in the streets as Michael Carolarius did, the patriarch, and this type of thing. There was a, the revolt in the 1200s. They had stirred up such hatred for the West that the revolt in the 1200s, the emperor who was taking back control in Constantinople, he used the, the slogan, death to the Azimites. And Azimites refers to the yeast, the non-yeast blessed sacrament of the West. Death to the Azimites, which stirred up the mob allowed him to seize power. Now, the Greeks had the same disdain for the further Eastern Christians, the Armenians. In their books, they disdain, they, they, they say that they're heretics because they fast with cheese and eggs at a certain point of the year. <laughs> this is the type of insanity. So like your, your rank and file uh, Christian who's just trying to work out a salvation doesn't care about the fact that this other Eastern Christian fast from cheese and meat on this day or that day and these other christians use yeast or not yeast. this type of thing is just insane and th but this is the type of thing that still motivates many eastern orthodox who are the leadership who are educated this is what they're educated with um but Soloviev is saying hey the the rank and file eastern catholics do not get into these disputes they're simply these 
normal, ordinary Christians who are just trying to pass down the faith to their people. So we see this in a large degree is that after Constantinople falls, which is when that's when the, the anti-Rome faction seizes control with help from the Mohammedans. So all the Greeks who were in favor of the of splitting from Rome, they they form a unity with the Mohammedans. They gain power over Constantinople and Constantinople then is able to impose Greek clergy on the, all the rest of the Eastern patriarchs. And they say they gain a ton of power. But every time these, these patriarchs are given further freedom, many times they are they come back into communion with Rome. So there, in, in the, the patriarchate of Antioch, there wasn't really a clear schism until 1726. The Antiochian patriarch, that's when the Antiochian patriarch finally had a free election of their patriarch and they elected a Catholic. And so, and then that's when the Greeks imposed a Greek onto the Arabs. Uh, you know, these are Arabs. They speak Arabic. They don't speak Greek. And the Arab, the Arab Catholic patriarch then was split between the Melkite uh, Catholic patriarch today, as it is today, with the Greek uh, imposed on them. So, but the, so the point is when, when there is this greater freedom, there is a great deal of a mass of faithful who are willing to come into communion with Rome, but they've just been oppressed either by the Mohammedans or by the Eastern Orthodox themselves. So in Russia, what happens is the leadership of Russia realizes that if they accept communion with Rome, they may not have their dreams of a Roman empire fulfilled because the czar is taking to himself the ancient pagan notion of Roma. Roma was a goddess that was worshipped, who was the personification of the Roman Empire. And this is a, a goddess worship that persists in the East implicitly because their emperor is given sacred powers as the Pontifex Maximus, hmm. meaning the that's the term that we give to the Pope because he's a priest. But in, in pagan Rome, the emperor was, in fact, the Pontifex Maximus. He was the priest and the king. And so there's this priest-king notion that gets persists in the East. So the czar seizes that same thing, and he realizes that if he accepts the Pontifex Maximus as the priest, he can't be his own Pontifex Maximus, and he can't control his own clergy. So what happens is the czar rejects the union with Florence, the or the leadership. Uh, this is brushing over all these details, so I, I'm just trying to give a totally general picture here. But um, So later in 1555, you have the... <clears throat> uh, Soglav Sobor, which is where the, the concept of third Rome is promoted by their own saints. So these people are canonized in the East who are promoting the fact that Moscow becomes the new Roman Empire. So he takes the title Tsar, Caesar. And then later, the Tsar seizes complete control over the church. He abolishes the patriarchate of Moscow. So that would be like, that would be like the, emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor occupying Rome and abolishing the papacy. Yeah. I mean, this is like huge. Uh, the czar takes control of the church. He imposes a unification of rituals on the Russian people. Now, what he's doing here is he's imposing a particular, he's, he's imposing a particular right. And so these are these, these minuscule little pieces of, of ritual, which the Russian people have been doing for centuries. Uh, so it has to do with conforming them all to a, a particular Greek rite at the time, which is things like the way you cross yourself, 
mm-hmm. those types of things. It also introduced different forms of music, which were more westernized. So it was suppressing the local native Russian chant. Um, so this is the origin of the, the old believer schism, oh. which is where the <clears throat> the czar and the patriarch at the time suppressed and imposed on the whole Russian people. And at this time, we we're talking about millions of believers who have all been converted by this, this pure gospel, which is unadulterated from these schismatic tendencies. And what happens is there's a massive revolt of the Russian people at this time against this because they it's it's the beauty I, I love the beauty of these different peasant revolts that happen in the Catholic world you know the Vendée and you have the Casteros and England gonna, yeah and we have England and and it's and they don't it's not because they're really educated it's because they have an instinctual uh, reaction that Jesus Christ is King yeah they know that he's King of Kings and that this petty earthly ruler cannot control the church like a despot they have this instinct that happens and that's why they all just say christ is king that's that was their motto their motto goes back to that so it's remarkable so the old believers i see them as an instinctual reaction like this but the problem is they're cut off from rome completely they they have no leadership they have no i mean at this time there's not a strong contact You know, they're not at all educated. And so what happens is lamentably they splinter into a million pieces. Some of them that some of them follow after weird Protestant sects. Some of them don't even have priests. Some of them think that like the Antichrist rule is here and that's that. Um, but the most sober among them are, are simply simply asserting that the state does not have absolute control. Basically, the czar is not Pontifex Maximus. Jesus Christ is Pontifex Maximus, and he rules through his vicars on earth who are the bishops. And that's, that is what, what the old believer schism is at its root really trying to say, but it just, because it's because of the situation, they splinter in a million pieces. Now, interestingly, um, they still hold, many of them still hold, to the traditional belief in the Immaculate Conception. And so it's an offensive thing to them that after 1854, following the tradition of, of mm. this schismatic mentality, because the schismatic mentality in them in the East, they just define their religion by not Rome. Yeah. Whatever Rome's doing, not that. That's what we are. So even, and I quoted this in the article I put, I did year, a few years ago, which is where uh, Callistos Ware, who is an Orthodox writer, he admits that before 1854, there were many Orthodox who wrote things that were basically the Mecca conception, more or less. But after 10, 1854, now the Orthodox world is mostly against it. <laughs> well, that's just ridiculous. This is just reaction theology, you know. Uh, so the, what's interesting is that the old believers, some old believers are far more in line with the Mecca conception mm-hmm. without any contact from Rome. And they just take offense to uh, this imposition. So anyways, you have these, you have this split in the, in the Russian church between the, these millions of peasants. Now they were persecuted viciously by the czar. They were rounded up and killed. And this was, and the, the crazy thing is that this was over things like crossing your finger with crossing yourself with two fingers versus three fingers and this type of thing. Like they were, they were going to be excommunicated. They were excommunicated as heretics. They were anathematized and they were killed for over things like this. 
And this was approved by the entire Eastern Orthodox Church. All the patriarchs, the Greek patriarchs, came to Moscow. They all approved it. It should be an ecumenical council by, by their own standards. But it's actually not because it's a travesty of, of state intervention, essentially. Uh, later on, there's been question as to whether or not these rites were even, in fact, the ancient ones or not. Um, but essentially, the, this is the, the problem in the East, is that the state basically has run the church, whether that's in the Persian Empire with the Assyrian church or in the, the Roman Empire in the East under, under the emperor or the Mohammedans or even the Russian czar. And sort of, yeah. sort of in, in every case, whether it's even Christian or not, the state is controlling the church. And so the state moves the church as to which way they want to go. But luckily, in God's providence, he has not left the Russian people without a great deal of spiritual uh, nourishment. Obviously, they continue in the same sacraments. And this is, I think, the reason why the Eastern Orthodox Church hasn't split into a million pieces like the Protestants, because the Protestants have no divine grace. They have no sacraments, uh, whereas the East at least has sacraments. Um, but what's interesting is after at this very time, there's a great sort of a rapprochement with the West, because Tsar Nicholas is trying to, or the um, the Tsars, not Tsar Nicholas, sorry, the Tsars in the 1660s, when they're oppressing the old believers, they're actually trying to cozy up to the West, and they join the Holy League against the Mohammedans in the later 1600s. Um, now, after they abolished the Patriarchate, which is condemned by all the Russian bishops, but it's approved by all the Greek bishops who get funding when they go over to uh, Moscow. But the Jesuits actually start to educate Russians mm -hmm. from time to time. Uh, and, and in fact, what's interesting is in, in when Clement, the Pope Clement XIV betrays the Jesuits in 1773 and, and, and uh, suppresses them uh, after the Masons make him do it. He, he's basically capitulated to the Masons. The uh, Russians actually keep the Jesuits in Russia at the time. So the Russians continue on during the suppression. So it's interesting. Can I just interject ahead, there? Yeah. Just um, the timing, the timing when you go through all this uh, uh, stuff leading up to Fatima is so remarkable because 1773 is the suppression of the Jesuits because of the influence of the Masons. Obviously, that's right around 1776, and that's right before 1789 with um, what happened in France. But if you actually look into what's going on right at that time with the um, creation of the Illuminati, which put your tin hat on. But uh, the actual like school of philosophy called Illuminism, made by Adam Weishoff, it's well documented. Uh, whatever the Dan Brown novels and stuff say, I have no idea. But historically speaking, it's a real thing. And they modeled their they modeled their order, I guess you can call it, their societies as an ape of the Jesuits, right? Um, with the idea of having. Well, the idea of having a very centralized leadership that was very small with concentric circles that go around the whole world so that you could disseminate your information in a way that's effective. Now, obviously, Jesuits don't do it in a secret way, historically, because it's not duplicitous because it's Catholic. But it's just interesting that you see the suppression of the Jesuits leads to an ape of the Jesuits throughout the entire church and the entire world, um, which, again, providentially, how terrible are the Jesuits right now and how terrible is the state of the church. It shows you how important the Jesuit order is in the church and how providential it was that St. Ignatius of Loyola founded it. And I can't wait for the day that there's finally a restoration of the Jesuits because I mean, they're, you know, and the Pope is Jesuit. I mean, it just shows you how, from what you're talking about right now, 
culminating in this suppression of the Jesuits, it's almost like from there we start to see the decline of the church ever so slowly. Anyway, go on. Oh, yeah. This is – I definitely <clears> – <throat> excuse me. Um, in my book, I'm arguing that the real revolution came with the suppression of the Jesuits. That's mm -hmm. the beginning of the revolution. So mm -hmm. a lot of people usually date it to 1789 with the French. Mm -hmm. I think more accurately, you should date it to the American. But then even more accurate, I think I think you get to date it to 1773 because that's really the first real blow of a revolution where the Masons are able to suppress all these Jesuits. They're able to the Jesuits were uh, heading up hundreds and hundreds of schools throughout the world. And by suppressing the Jesuits, the state, the Masonic state which was unfortunately true in Portugal and Spain at this time. There was strong Masonic involvement. Yeah. They were able to seize the the, the schools. Well, in and, some places, yeah. some places didn't have, like Portugal did not have a strong diocesan structure. They were run basically by the Jesuits. Now they were obviously had diocese. Okay. But um, it's an, it's uh, historically the churches looked very different in different countries. Like if you would go to Mexico at the time of their conversion, um, they obviously had geographical places that they would call dioceses, but the country was basically run by a couple different orders. So you had the Franciscans, which was, you know, the Immaculate Heart and all that with um, anyway. But that so like they're, you know, if you suppress the Franciscans, there goes 70 percent of the clergy in Mexico. So if you suppress the Jesuits, there goes the majority of the clergy in Portugal, which then lead, and even in France, France obviously had more than that. But the Jesuits were huge in France. Okay, um, so when you suppress an order, it's not just people think of or okay, they're not going to have that little missionary apostolate over there. No, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's their bishop is a Jesuit, you know, like um, uh, every school is a Jesuit. Um, um, Eighty percent of their clergy in their diocese are Jesuit. So then, what do they do? Right? Obviously, it takes different forms. A lot of them just continue being Jesuits and call them different things. Um, you know, we're the something of the Sacred Heart instead. You know, but it's the exact same spirituality. Oh. Um, but it caused a huge chaos. Yeah. So, yeah, very important aspect of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but essentially, and, and just to wrap that up, I mean, I would because because Pius the seventh brings back the Jesuits and then they immediately get to work destroying the revolution intellectually. Mm -hmm. they, they they found a newspaper, Javilta Catholica, and they just destroy the revolution, all of their points and all of the ri ridiculous reasoning the false reason, the age of false reason, so-called enlightenment. The Jesuits just destroy them. So the only way they can find a way to destroy the Jesuits, the fallen angels, introduce George Tyrrell and Teilhard de Chardin by mm -hmm. using a, a pseudo-science, yeah. by using a pseudo-intellectualism. That's how they're able to finally get the Jesuits to bring them to their knees, which happens with, now brings us to our modern era. But getting back to our topic, um, so 1900, What's really interesting is once again, 1900, Tsar Nicholas allows a great deal of freedom in certain areas in his realm because there's a, an opening to the West further. They, they free the serfs earlier, which were sold as slaves. They were basically work. They were not like Western serfs, which was developed and abolished slavery. It was basically like Western slaves. And so the serfs are about the serfdom is abolished. Um, and they give this freedom of religion. And, and then you have hundreds of thousands of Russians and Ukrainians immediately become Catholic because they were forced to be under uh, Russian empire, forced to be Russian Orthodox or whatever, various reasons. 
And then you have this figure of Vladimir Soloviev, who writes a book called Russian and the Universal Church, which argues for the reunification of the churches, that uh, Rome is the divine primacy. He argues for all the Catholic points, but he argues that the Russian church must continue as Russian. And that's the key point, because even the Western powers like Portugal had gone over into a Latinization imperial mindset, which was back in the Franks that we mentioned in the beginning. They, they had gone over and this, had, unfortunately, the Jesuits, some of the Jesuits had done this, too. And you know, Jesuits are not immune from excess either, um, even at this period. But essentially, they had gone into different places and forced them to accept Latin rites and Latin rituals against their ancestral customs, which go back to the apostles. And this was happening in different areas. Like in India, there was a split in the church. The, you know, the apostolic church of India goes back to St. Thomas. So they, they have no need to conform their rights to Latin customs. Um, now we don't have time to get into all these different aspects of this, but um, the point is that the Russian church will stay Russian. And this goes into the conversion of Russia because yep. there is, there seems to be some confusion because I've heard some things say, well, does that mean that they'll become Roman Catholic? Well, no, it doesn't mean that they'll become Roman Catholic. So, and, but I think there's some confusion because Orthodox critics will say, well, that clearly that, that means it says that they're not going to become Catholic. Well, that's not true either. So, um, but Vladimir Soloviev says that the Russian church needs to stay Russian. I, and essentially the, here's the, here's the bottom line with the East Eastern Orthodox there's a totally, every individual Eastern Orthodox is different. Yeah. Whether they're totally schismatic and even heretical, they're, they're denying dogmas of the church, like the Immaculate Conception or the, or the papacy. They could be heretics, um, or they could be just your ordinary Eastern Orthodox who doesn't care at all about these disputes among these theologians. Yep. And it's just trying to work out a salvation. You know, those and, types of people. Go ahead. And I would add as well, um, <clears throat> I have some Eastern Orthodox friends, uh, Serbian guys, and <clears throat> their understanding of what the papacy is, is totally false. So even when they say things like, uh, we don't believe the Pope is the Pope, because how can a man be infallible? I'm like, you just rejected a parody of the Pope, you know, so uh, we don't believe the Pope's infallible. We believe that he obviously has certain distinctions at certain times can make infallible statements, but the Pope is far from infallible. <laughs> It's a man. Um, but th the point is, is to even amongst these Orthodox, like even those who would reject something like the papacy in their own mind, I can't judge what they're believing, but um, they're rejecting something that doesn't even exist. So that's a strange thing as well, because I mean, if if you thought that the Pope was, if, if, if you thought that Catholic, like if you had the Protestant <clears throat> understanding of what the sort of pretend idea of what the Pope is, yeah, you'd reject that. You know, this idea that he's a divine oracle and everything he says is, is gospel. Well, that's a problem under Pope Francis. Well, it's a problem under a lot of popes. Um, so when, even when uh, some Orthodox have that idea, well, that's just the wrong idea. So whether or not that counts as them rejecting the Pope, it, you know what I mean? Like from an individual perspective, that'll have to be worked out on their own judgment day. So I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, the Yeah, I mean... To what to what extent God will hold them culpable for believing in lies that they've, been, they've been told by their own from their youth, you right. know, yeah. you know, whereas it, it's one thing if you're a Protestant and we, we can, you know, give the Protestants a much better than the doubt because they're just giving lies about Rome, but they don't have any sacraments. Yeah. And so how I mean, I don't know how they can stand a judgment day, but perhaps God will have mercy on, on you know, these 
you know, it just invincibly ignorant. I mean, if they're invincibly ignorant and they, they surely certainly are using the grace that afforded to them in the sacraments to uh, work out their salvation and they're just believing in total lies. Yeah. Which are, are very good lies. I think that mm-hmm. the best lies really against Rome come from Eastern Orthodoxy, in my opinion. They're the mm-hmm. most most deceptive. Well, they they, they 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 appeal to apostolic things. Yeah, they, they, they have very good things. foundation. They have very good foundation in the patristics. It's not just that it's not like the Protestants. They just oh, they say, well, Augustine taught our doctrine. That's you know, that's yeah. like risable claim. They're not appealing uh, to Luther, right? <laughs> so, but they can, you know, they have good authority in, in the fathers for a lot of their doctrines, and it's and it's a lot more nuanced because sometimes Latin Latin apologists will just be very, they're kind of excessive in their yeah. apologetics, and that that then that discredits Rome. So, anyhow, another just, topic. Have you ever, <laughs> um, when you were Eastern Orthodox, which Bible did you read? Just as a side note, which version? Oh. uh well, it was the Septuagint version translated into English. There's there's certain different, certain small discrepancies with the Vulgate. Um, there's like there's 151st Psalm, for example. Yeah. Um, few there, but it's it's pretty minor. Uh, was it what was the English like? Was it the King James style English, or was it North like American English? Well, the one I had was actually the Antiochian the Arabs. Um, so the Arab. Arab Orthodox are far different than the Greek Orthodox. Greek Orthodox are far more anti-Rome than the Arabs because the Arabs have been under like, and like I said, they weren't really quote technically out of schism until 1700. Anyways, the Arabs um, have, they translated a, uh, uh, I don't, I can't reach it. It's up there, but they're um, the North American Antiochian archdiocese uh, Orthodox. They have their own English translation that they, they put out. Um, actually by some Protestant converts to Orthodoxy. Uh, that's the one I read. It's called the Orthodox, uh, the Orthodox study Bible. <clears throat> so, uh, I would, I mean, I think, I mean, in my experience, and this is, I mean, I was an Antiochian Orthodox, but in my experience, the, the dominant, uh, Orthodox churches that are creating an engaging, American culture, in a sense, of, of you know, creating media and that type of thing, are the Antiochians. Mm. Uh, the Russians are, are not as much, and the Greeks are not as much. It seems that the Antiochians really are. The, they're creating things like um, Ancient Faith Radio, which is a Orthodox podcast. Um, but they're they're strong. Uh, they're you know to their credit, they're they're engaging a lot more. Anyhow, um, yeah. So bringing this all to Fatima. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've uh, tried to give a, a little bit of historical context here, but there's some very interesting things that are happening right at this moment. Mm-hmm. Now, first, you have Pius X. Pius X is uh, seeking to suppress modernism, but he's also seeking to suppress the excess of nationalism and militarism, mm-hmm. which is building up at this time. Mm-hmm. And Britain, uh, ever since the 1870s, really, 1870s, Germany started to build up their navy, mm-hmm. which was challenging Britain's dominance on the seas. Britain said, we have to provoke a war with Germany or we're going we're gonna to lose our dominance. Mm-hmm. So they t- start to work on provoking a war with Germany, which eventually starts, becomes the Great War, the, the World War I. <clears throat> but Pius X is trying to... Uh, as all good popes have done throughout history, trying to broker peace between these peoples. And, but what's really interesting is that he helped set up the first Russian exarchate 
of the Russian Catholic Church. This is Blessed Leonid Fyodorov, who was a survivor of the Gulag and was beatified by John Paul II into, I think it was 2000, but he was the first exarchate of the Russian Catholic Church. And he was, I, I believe, uh, under, well, under Pius X, he was a, uh, he was a priest. He was a Catholic priest who was, who was in the Russian Rite. So this was the first time that they were creating a Russian Rite because even before this, the Russian Catholic Church, any Catholics in Russia were basically Poles worshiping the Latin Rite. And there was never a Russian, Russian or Catholic Ukrainians, church. Or Ukrainians, probably. Yeah, you know, they were you and they were in the south. But um, and I'm not sure if uh, Tsar Nicholas was allowing freedom of religion in certain domains. Um, but there really was not a Russian Catholic church. And in fact, when he presented himself as a Russian Catholic with a Russian right before the February Revolution, which we'll get into. So even under Tsar, the Tsar, he was sent to Siberia. Yep. So they were allowing Catholics to or Orthodox to become Catholic because they realized a lot of them were, you know, old Poles and whatever they'd forced into it. But as soon as a, an ethnic Russian who's through and through Russian starts presenting a Russian right Catholic church, he gets thrown into Siberia. This is the, the providence of Fatima, like the whole, when I say Fatima, I'm not just, I don't just mean the town, but like when I, the whole message, the prop, the providence of the whole thing is so astounding when you look at it, because I mean, look, I mean, today you still can't avoid this fact that uh, there's basically three empires on earth and the world lives off of whatever mistakes they make. You have America, you have China and you have Russia, you know, I mean, sure, the Soviet Union fell, but Russia didn't really change. <laughs> I mean, as far as being a world power and influence and all this kind of stuff. And um, when people uh, talk about the conversion of Russia as part of the Fatima message, people have this impression that what that means is like Russia has to become Novosordo or something. <laughs> um, what it means is this Russian right. What it means is Russians will be Catholic, um, which the liturgy can remain the same, the traditions and all this kind of stuff, but it's just a unification with Rome. Um, and you see the providence with leading up to the 1917 revolution and the 1917 apparitions. You see the Pope was leading the way is Pope Pius X. Um, and I would also recommend everyone who wants to know the true history of the First World War. Do you know who James Corbett is? No. He's amazing. He's not religious, I don't think. He's actually Canadian, but he lives in Japan. And he's like the best. He calls himself a conspiracy realist, uh, meaning he just, I mean, conspiracy theories, whatever that means. He just finds the truth about things. He has a documentary called The World War One Conspiracy. It's the best I've ever uh, listened to. You can listen to it or watch it. And he talks exactly about what you're talking about with... Um, the fact that the First World War was basically started by England and everything that we know about it is just basically propaganda. Um, but there were very specific geopolitical reasons, which had to do with um, exactly what we're going through right now. So you see, again, the message of Fatima is the thing that cures all these ills, which is why it was set up at the time that it was set up. Because happening in the 1860s, 1870s in England, you see the advent of all of the major errors that are really the errors of Russia. And perhaps I'll just, a little tangent here, but um, I was speaking to a man from Czech Republic um, and he said, one of the things that needs to be understood is that the errors of Russia are actually the errors of the West, but spread through Russia. Um, Great point. It's true because what's happening right now in England, and again, World War I plays a big part in the Fatima apparitions because uh, a year before Our Lady 
appeared, that's when um, Portugal actually entered into the war at the behest of England. Anyway, um, in the 1860s and 1870s, you have Darwin, you have um, uh, Englishmen. Yeah, but you have uh, uh, Marx, who was an inter interlocutor with uh, Darwin. Um, you Malthus have, is also Malthus. Yep, and you have you have the advent of um, also Cecil Rhodes. People don't know him, but Rhodes Scholarship is named after him. He's actually, well, he started a secret society that doesn't have a name. It's so secret, um, and that's and he was the richest man who's ever lived, essentially, even with inflation. And he set up a legacy of um, things in all our countries today, the Council for Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute, Royal Inter Institute of International Affairs, all these things. Everyone you can think of as a, as a member of these places, the Clintons, the Bushes, everybody, um, Schwab, the whole World Economic Forum, everyone that you can think of was part of this legacy that Cecil Rhodes set up. He's linked to the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. I mean, it goes so deep. But um, he also uh, pushed the idea of eugenics, okay? Um, and that was that's the brainchild of all these people, which actually they set up the environmentalist revolution. Um, after the Second World War, they had to change the name of it because eugenics didn't sound good anymore. Um, <laughs> so they call environmentalism, which full, uh, circle, yeah. to, full circle to where I am. Uh, the man who was the who was chosen by the secret society was a man named Maurice Strong from Manitoba, Canada, um, who worked closely with uh, the Trudeau family. Anyway, so it, um, but all these errors of all these errors of Russia, they're all errors of the West. Okay. Spread and Russia had its own problems, obviously, as we're seeing, you know, but the intellectual patrimony of these errors really finds itself in the revolutionary West, France and England specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so essentially, and, and we don't want to exonerate Germany either because Germany, you know, unified and they suppress Catholicism. Well, Marx, in Marx, right? You're right, right. Certainly. <laughs> Marx is certainly, uh, I, I believe he was in the Prussian domain at first, um, but that became all Germany over to 1870. But anyhow, um, so the, so it's Pius X is helping to set up the Russian church and uh, Leonid Fedorov is a, is a Catholic priest in the Gulag. They already sent him to the, to the Siberia under the, before the communists even happened. And, uh, but Pius X, in all of his efforts, he, the, he, all of his efforts for peace fall on deaf ears. The, he dies right as the, the armament is happening. I believe the assassination happened uh, like two or three months before the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, which was the quote unquote start of the world war one. But that's a joke because mm -hmm. as we know, it's been going on. They've been preparing this for, for decades, but, um, you know, all these powers, they just want a little pretext that they can convince the public to do what they wanted to do anyways. Mm -hmm. And this is why you have either false, either the false flag operations happening where they just set it up or they set up a situation where something then can happen and then they can do it. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter. It's just and this is not conspiracy. This is like this is what this is document. you can find it. You can <laughs> this find is the, the I mean, nations have been doing this for centuries. Yeah, they always need a little pretext to do what they want to do anyways. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, so. Pius X falls on deaf ears, deaf ears, just as Pius XI will do later. Uh, mm -hmm. He dies just as the war is beginning. Mm -hmm. So the war begins. Uh, England, France, Germany, they're all killing each other. Mm -hmm. uh, other powers uh, are thrown in. Uh, Russia is involved. But what's interesting here is that 
there are two different peace plans. Mm -hmm. One is promoted by Benedict the Fifteenth, uh, who is promoting uh, a disarmament, uh, peace, and a ceasefire with no winner. He, that's his peace plan, because he, there's cl it's clear that this is just a battle there's no, over. There's the no game. real, there's no real good guy and bad guy in that war. That's what people have to understand. Right. Yeah, that, that, yeah, that's that's what they make it out to be. I mean, I would say. I mean, I mean, they I, are, but it, for for, yeah. the, for the common na nation, it's just geopolitical nonsense. I mean, yeah. you're German and you're fighting the English, like for what, you know? And that's been one of the hard things for me to re -under, relearn my Canadian history is how much Canada has actually been a vassal state of um, the very Masonic, very Masonic, very uh, Rhodesian, as we find Cecil Rhodes, um, ambitions of the British Empire. Like Canada, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. the, the average Canadian, we know nothing about this. We're just, you know, we have Remembrance Day and everyone's honoring the fallen soldiers. And that's that's a good thing insofar as your your patriotism is a good thing. Um, but when you look into it, it's like, man, you know, Canada's uh, Canada was right there in, in uh, South Africa with the Boer War, which was uh, for Cecil Rhodes because it was about diamonds, basically. And that's what made him the richest man in the world. And he funded the De Beers family. Anyway, um, so... It's just amazing uh, how wrong everything we've ever learned about history is and how providentially, you know, I, obviously this only works in English, but history is God's story because it's his story, you know, like um, it's amazing. Uh, I was talking to Bug Hall on an interview I did with him. He's a former actor, or I guess he still acts a little bit. But anyway, he converted and stuff and whatever. And, and um, he said, you know, the, his the true history of civilization is Catholicism doesn't mean everything that the Catholic Church in a geopolitical sense has always done has always been accurate or good. But as we're seeing right now, if you want to know the true history of Russia, the true history of England, the true history of World War One, you actually have to understand it through the lens of Catholicism, because that's the only way you'll get all the moving parts together. And they culminate with Fatima. Yep. And what's interesting, what, what I'm trying to bring out of my book is that there's a bizarre conspiracy that you can mm -hmm. notice between all these different powers and, and groups and everybody, and they're not actually connected. They're actually talking to each other, but somehow they all hate Rome. Yeah, yeah. Somehow, yeah. I, I don't know. You know, and my, my, I'm saying this is the fallen angels. The devil, yeah. They are conspiring all these groups together. Yeah. They're not actually talking to each other, but the fallen angels are the ones bringing them together. Anyhow, mm -hmm. uh, so World War One, uh, it is the worst bloodbath that the world has ever seen. Yeah, uh, mass conscriptions. You know, they're, they're forcing all these common, you know, fathers of families to fight for the economic interests of these elites in this massive technological war. Mm -hmm. You know, they're using they're using uh, all sorts of new technology, new brutality, mm -hmm. devastating the world. Now, during this time, uh, Father Fyodorov is in, in Siberia um, Pi, uh, or Benedict XV is on the throne now. What happens in 1915? You've got some Fatima stuff in 1915. Actually, so in 1915, just as a background, um, Portugal is very Masonic at this point. Um, like Portugal's decaying basically as a society. Um, and there's way too much to go into for that. But uh, the little well, sister Lucia, she actually had apparitions in 1915 before the angel of peace. Um, but it's kind of like these apparitions happen in progressions, you know, like she was prepared for it. All she sort of talks about is like an angelic sort of translucent man. Um, and there's no words spoken, but there are apparitions where, uh, she basically 
sees the divine, if that makes sense. You know, she's like, that was from heaven, whatever that was. And uh, tells her parents about it, but it's kind of poo-pooed as, as, um, as you know, children, children nonsense. So sometimes too, when, when we get to talking about the apparitions and Sister Lucy's mom was very reluctant, um, people kind of think that came out of nowhere, but there was, again, there was this, there was this um, history over the last couple of years of her telling her parents that she kept seeing things from heaven. Well, like, listen, if my son said he saw his guardian angel, I'd be like, that's great. I hope it's true. But like, you might just be fibbing. Um, so that's why, you know, one of the, her mom was almost fed up by the time that it actually happened. Um, so anyway, Sister Lucy talks about these apparitions as well, which happened in 1915. Okay. Um, and then 1916, that's when the angel of peace comes. Um, what's really interesting about the apparition of the angel of peace uh, in Portugal is it talks about the war. So politics has always been part of, uh, of that apparitions because it's, you know, crisis Kings. There's a, there's a, we can't dis discredit the temporal reality of the, the, the need for these things. It's not just a quote unquote spiritual message anymore that you just have just a soul or just a body. You, you know, you have, to, they have to work together. Um, <clears throat> and when the angel of peace talks about the war, um, the remedy that he gives is all about the Holy Eucharist. The remedy that he gives is all about devotion to the sacred, uh, to, to Jesus to the, through the Holy Eucharist. And there's an aspect of the precious blood and so forth. Um, and that sets up the apparitions that come in 1917. Excellent. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, in 1916, mm -hmm. another fateful moment, another, not fateful, but or not that it's another fateful, but this is the fateful moment of the 20th century. And that is a Jesuit named Teilhard de Chardin writes his first essay, 1916. That's 1916. So, yeah. so 19, so Teilhard de Chardin is the Jesuit that corrupted the Jesuit order. I mean, Tyrrell did it first, George Tiller, but he was actually condemned and excommunicated, died outside the church. And, um, but Teilhard de Chardin kind of remakes Tyrrell's philosophy. He believes so wholeheartedly in evolution mm -hmm. that he literally believes that this bloodbath of a war is some kind of progress because yeah. evolution is the you know natural selection. You have you have his idea of evil is that evil is sort of this evolutionary creation it's that comes up, yeah, that sort of comes out and then out of that because of the so evolutionary Darwinianism is that you know survival of the fittest is sort of what creates progress. People, so, need to, people need to understand yeah. evolutionism is just Gnosticism, like applied to the sciences. That's exactly what it is. And evolutionism is inherent in the errors of Russia. Okay. And I want people to, um, as we end up talking about consecration and all that, as we go through this series, they're called the errors of Russia, not the errors of the Soviet Union. So one mm. of the things I'm going to argue later on, the Soviet Union fell. Russia did not fall. She didn't say convert Soviet Union, she said convert Russia. Okay, Soviet Union is a collection of states. Russia is a nation of peoples. Very different things. Um, so um, uh, inherent in the areas of Russia, which are the areas of the West spread through Russia, is this Gnosticism that's called evolutionism. And if you look at the history of what uh, the, the Chinese did as well, uh, when they uh, applied their errors, uh, through communism, the first thing that they would teach the people, and this is documented by a bishop named Bishop Ogara. He was in China before the uh, revolution or at the th around the time of it in, in China. They would teach the people in the villages evolution. 
Mm. That was the first thing they would teach them. They wouldn't teach them Marxist economic theory because if they could treat the if they could if they could convince the people that they were beasts, they could treat them as such, which is the idea of it. There we go. Because um, you have to have a complete dismantling of the authority of not just uh, the temporal authority of the church, but even the ability to believe that the scriptures are true. Because and this is inherent in all these errors. Because um, and in fact, this goes back even further with geocentrism and heliocentrism which was disproven by Einstein himself. He said you could hold either because relatively makes that possible. So you could be a geocentrist and not be a fringe scientist. You could just use Einstein to do that, ironically. Um, but that was one of the first major blows. Was It's a very secretive, uh, strange way that that happened. It's, there's a lot of Sun Genesis talks about that. Um, but that's the beginning of the intellectual, the, 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 the secular realm looking at the church as someone who can f um, air and intellectual things which was a big deal. Um, so you have to discredit the entire patrimony of everything that you knew in order to implement all of these errors of Russia. And this has already been happening, obviously, with the Enlightenment and so forth. But it culminates with, as you're talking about, the spread of evolutionism, which uh, is the devil's gospel. It is the most... It is the most uh, pernicious and destructive error, in my opinion, in the history of, well, in the last 500 years of the church. Because, again, uh, there's a lot of debate you can have about certain things in the natural world, and they don't affect the faith whatsoever. But, uh, you know, you talk to any lapsed Catholic from, you know, my dad, for example. We were having a conversation years ago. Uh, well, I couldn't believe, you know, I mean, the church still, the church still teaches, uh, actually, sorry, the side note here, this shows how the traditional doctrine of creation was always that the history of Genesis was actually true, because he stopped going to church in like 1969, basically, and growing up in Catholic schools, he believed that the church still taught traditional doctrine of creation, <laughs> which shows it didn't change till after the Second Vatican Council. Anyway, but... Um, uh, his whole thing was church is anti-science, church is anti-science, church is anti-science. And what do you see today in neoconservative Catholicism? And I'm going to Catholic answers in places like that. They're the biggest proponents of this. And it's very sad. Oh, the church is not anti-science. Look, here's how we'll take your theory. That's completely blasphemous. And we're going to make it look Catholic. And then at best, what you become when you hear those things is you become someone who's sort of uh, secularly inspired intellectual who finds a spiritual consolation in the Catholic Church, but you hold on to these errors of what? These errors of Russia. Is it any secret or is it any surprise that in the sort of uh, mainstream conservative church that the idea that the message of Fatima has not been fulfilled yet is like one of the only things they'll fight against? I mean, think about all the errors in the church right now. But if you look at all the efforts of all the neoconservative, uh, whatever, the idea that, fa that the consecration did not happen is anathema. Why? Because if the consecrate, because inherent, whether they know it or not, like you said, these different empires are not coordinating with each other, but they're all coming with the same plan because it's from Satan. Okay. In the same way with the errors of Russia, everything is encapsulated. All of the ills are encapsulated. Um, uh, even liturgically, if we just go back to what you were talking about, because uh, again, we can go to excess as, as Latin right traditional Catholics and think that it's never been possible that you could have an organic rise of a vernacular right the Novus Ordo was not that I'm not saying that but I'm saying it's possible so you can't make that argument where you go too far the other side and say it has to be this way it's not that's not the way the church works okay inherent in all the problems in the church are the errors of Russia and in my opinion the biggest one just to finish here is um is evolutionism because it is 
a complete reversal of reality. Uh, revelation is top down. God is creator and we are his instruments, so to speak. Evolution is bottom up. Okay. It's Gnostic. It's the chaos. It's the, if you read it, it just sounds like those myths of Marduk and all these, you know, Mesopotamian gods and they're fighting whatever. And then, you know, they come out of there becomes this, whatever. Um, and also it, evolution gives you the intellectual and philosophical um, permission, let's say, to do everything that we've seen as you're talking about with Chardin, because um, eugenics, uh, if you look at eugenics, it's just, um, Francis Galton was his name. He was the man who coined that term eugenics in the, in the 1800s. Um, it's just permission to evol evolve the species. You know, we're evolving the species because uh, we're the, this, this gives you the reason. This is why it's the same thing as Illuminism. Illuminism just means like we're the enlightened ones. It's the same thing as Manichaeism, which we see with St. Augustine. He crushed that after he converted. So we're just going through one of those periods in church history right now where Gnosticism uh, is basically causing what? The collapse of civilization, which is what it ended up doing to the Western Roman Empire as well. So all of these things are connected. And Fatima is the modern instantiation and the most important thing in the church as a result. Excellent. Uh, that's I, The only thing I'd add to that is, is point out that evolution at not only coming from an Englishman, but it is a thoroughly English ideology to believe in an evolution yes. because they've been trying to promote Whig history, mm -hmm. which is basically a rationalization of all their crimes from the 1500s, yeah. adultery, murder, theft. They've been trying to rationalize that ever since. And they finally found a way with Whig history, which is that the, the world is just progressing towards liberty and more liberty. And exactly. that's Whig history that gets transferred to America as manifest destiny. Yes. And there's this all this evolution of this idea of industrialization. The scientific revolution is all about we're just going to improve ourselves right. endlessly. And World War One is really the big counter point to that because you've improved endlessly and now you've murdered millions Ever. of people for yeah. what a petty kingdom yeah that's your that's your idea of progress and what's insane is that Teilhard de Chardin somehow still believes he's in the war he's on the front lines he's a stretcher barrier I mean the guy's seen action and somehow he still believes that this is some kind of progress it, famously uh yeah this is the best Always, I always go to Von Hildebrand. He is, in my opinion, he's got like a 10-page refutation of Deschardin, which is just brutal. And he says, because uh, Deschardin believes in, in, he believes so heavily in evolutionism yeah. that he believes that we're evolving into a higher consciousness. Yes. Into we'll a higher being. And, and yeah. Von Hildebrand points out, this is actually a totalitarian concept mm -hmm. because it, it's like, this is Hitler, exactly. What Hitler wanted to do is like this higher... I mean, he would quote unquote restore whatever pagan. Well, and, and it's also it's, yep. the, it. It Marxism is evolutionism. They were they were pen pals, right? Darwin and Marx, mm -hmm. and um, um, because because ultimately you're looking at the world like you know some sort of biological soup, and we're all organisms as part of this massive organism. Which and it's also pantheism. This is like, again, this is why all the errors are there because it's no different than if you think about um, Hinduism. Like, I know that upsets people, but reincarnation you're parts of a thing and like uh, the whole idea of of eastern pantheism is that eventually you would get to the point where you would be so what illuminated 
okay, uh, or enlightened, this interchangeable. This is one of the biggest tricks too of, of the devil is that they called that period the enlightenment, which means the same thing as Illuminism, which is what the Illuminati are, <laughs> this idea. So if you tell somebody that the Illuminati are a real thing, they'll be like, look at you like you're conspiracy theorists because they are, the word illumination and enlightenment means the same thing. Okay, so it's this trick of words there. So you discredit this idea. It could ever be something other than what the official history says. But it's the same thing as Eastern pantheism. And what do we see in um, the West right now as basically as uh, uh, true religion falls? Everyone just embraces Eastern pantheism. I mean, most women today will go to yoga and it's like, oh, it's not religious. It is religious. Okay, you're doing a religious ritual. You just don't know it. Um and so again, all of these errors are inherent with each other, and um, and this gives the this gives the uh, what's it called the totalitarians the free reign to basically treat people like they are some sort of um, well not just cattle but even more base than that like particles like particles in this grand organism that can be engineered to work in a certain way because as long as the whole is working properly, then that means that there's success for the species. Okay. This is why even with this Corona lockdown stuff, I get a little nervous. There's a lot of people that are anti-lockdown, but they keep saying, we need to recapture humanity. We need to, I don't like when people talk like that because what is humanity? I mean, you could say your humanity, meaning like your human nature, fine, but humanity is not a thing. Like this whole, what this mass of humanity, <clears throat> that's an that's, abstract concept, it's an abstract it's not, concept it's not concretized. And it plays into the hands no. of the heirs of Russia anyway. So we gotta we gotta <laughs> get to the first apparition, and I don't think we're gonna even talk about the content of the apparition because we're out of time. Uh, I just want to read this from this is Teilhard de Chardin. This is von Hildebrand commenting on Teilhard de Chardin. Quote: The alleged Teilhard's own approach is betrayed by his attitude toward the Hiroshima bomb. The alleged progress of humanity, which he sees in the invention of nuclear weapons, matters more to him than the destruction of innumerable lives and the most terrible suffering inflicted on individual persons. Yeah. So this is von Hildebrand refuting Teilhard de Chardin. And th so this is Teilhard de Chardin in World War I on the front lines. He writes his first essay. He begins his whole cosmic adventure into Gnostic evolutionary Teilhardianism, which corrupts and destroys the Jesuit order, which then eventually becomes Vatican II and rest is history, but we'll get into that. But so what happens here, what's really interesting is that right in 1917 is when there's a great deal of providential action that's that's happening here. First, um, in February 5th of 1917, the first communist constitution is approved in the whole world and it's in Mexico. Why? Because Satan had to go after Our Lady of Guadalupe. Because Our Lady of Guadalupe is the Empress of the Americas. Yeah. And at that time, the Americans were in tension with the, the Mexicans because it was known that the Germans were trying to bring Mexico into World War I. Mm -hmm. And what happens is at that time, there was a telegram that was, that was, that was deciphered by the Germans to Mexico trying to form an alliance so that Mexico could retake the parts of Mexico that were conquered by the United States in the 1846, which, which the United States did conquest Mexico um, and they, they invaded and took their land. So that, which is all the Southwest of the United States. If you're if not aware of this history, all the Southwest of the United States, California, New Mexico, Texas used to be part of Mexico. The United States basically either through covert operations or through an open war, they took it all. 
Okay. So the Germans were trying to get the Mexicans to come into the war to take back that land that was taken by the United States. That gets released in the third on the third of March. Okay. On the third of March, that becomes known and Germany admits that they were actually planning to do that. Okay. So this provokes the United States to enter the world war. Before that, they were strongly neutral. Now, at the same time, in March, March 15, 1917, Tsar Nicholas abdicates. So this is the February Revolution, which is the first, which seems to be, I, I haven't studied this extensively, but it seems to be more or less a peasant revolt uh, over food and that type of thing. But it was, the Marxists took advantage of it because there was real discontent among the people. Yeah. But uh, the situation, there was economic hardship and everything. So there is a, but what's interesting is that allows Leonor, uh, Leonid Fedorov to come back to, because the, the provisional government doesn't really care about Catholics or Orthodox, whatever. So they let them come back. Now it's during, uh, in March and May, and this is the season of Lent at this time, mm-hmm. that they set up uh, Leonid Fedorov as the exarchate, which was by powers given to uh, Sheptisky, the Ukrainian bishop by Pius X. So they set up the first bishop and they actually have a Russian Catholic Lent during this period. And uh, which is fundamental because on April 2nd, and we'll we'll get into May 13th, we'll have the first apparition of, of Fatima right now. But April 2nd is so huge because that's the first time there's a Russian Catholic Easter procession, a public Russian Catholic procession led by Fedorov, uh, but then the United States enters the First World War. And the reason this is so fundamental is because the message of the United States is a false gospel for the world. Because there's the gospel of Benedict XV, which is being preached, which is just this, it's really the same thing as Fatima, because Fatima is just saying, repent. And Benedict XV is saying, repent, everyone just go back to your countries. This is a... This is the suicide of Europe is what he terms this whole war. Um, But Woodrow Wilson, his false gospel is his slogan is make America safe for democracy. Mm -hmm. He, he employs the Jewish nephew of Sigmund Freud, Ed Bernays using to use psychological warfare. Was this the beginning of, of modern propaganda techniques using, using heightened psychological technology. And he begins to propagandize the whole world, and this is really the beginning of the American empire in the whole world. Yep. Before this, the American empire was just in the Americas. But now the American empire is taken to the world. And this is the, the counter gospel to the real gospel. And so this is why it's so fundamental right when Fatima is happening. So fast forward to May 13th and what happens on May 13th. And we'll leave it here, I guess, because we're going over time a bit. But um, one thing happens on May 13th that uh, nobody thinks about. There was a certain bishop consecrated. Do you know which one it was? No. Eugenio Pacelli. Ah, uh, oh, it happened on. Okay, yeah, right, right. <laughs> and Pacelli is so crucial because he's he's he speaks fluent German. The, yep. His curial court was they talk German, and yep. his his right right hand man was actually a woman. It was uh, it was um, <laughs> uh, Pascalina, yep. who was a German. He was a, she was a Bavarian nun. Yeah. Uh, and he he's the one who engineers the denunciation of of Nazism. Yeah. Uh, great pope <laughs> yeah, yeah love him so that's what happens on may 13th uh yeah. so he's very much a, a tragic end let's be honest but pius the 12th i mean he was very sick he was probably taking advantage of and stuff yeah um but yeah so he uh, is consecrated on may 13th um and that's the same time as the apparition the first apparition of fatima 
and Our Lady comes and visits the children. And um, that's the beginning of this whole thing. Excellent. So next week, we'll talk about the first apparition and its contents. But we wanted to really get into the historical uh, framework because God's providence is at work, obviously. Yeah. And the whole, I mean, the whole Fatima message is so shot through with God's providence. I mean, more than any other apparition, really. I mean, there's... Well, and one, one last yeah. thing I'll say before we go is all the apparitions have historical continuity with one another. And one fact between Mexico and Russia is Our Lady is standing on the crescent moon, right? In Our Lady of Guadalupe. Well, what else? What What's the symbol of the Soviet Union? Uh, it's the hammer and the sickle. Which is the crescent moon. So uh, she's also standing on the Soviet... She's also standing on the symbol of communism. Um... Uh, anyway, I just thought that was cool. That that's excellent. I never never made that connection. Is there any crescent moon with the? Well, there's no image with Our Lady of Fatima. This is a statue. But is, is the statue? No, they, was the, yeah, uh, okay. no, she's on a cloud there. Right. Okay. Okay. But there's no. But that was was the statue divinely inspired, like the Tilma was at all? No, the statue. Kind of... The statue was um, oh, Dominican priest. I can't remember his name. He sat down for a painstaking, like in a good way, he sat down for very accurate um, uh, descriptions from Sister Lucy for a long time, where she like had to oversee the, in, the entire um, production of any image or statue, and it was based perfectly off of her descriptions. Everything from like, how should the dress fall? Because Our Lady dresses very chastely, so like, where should the road... Like, Literally everything. And one last thing, too, is um, I think this is true, but if you look at um, all the authentic apparitions of Our Lady, you always see her feet. You don't see her feet uh, at Medjugorje. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, and that the idea behind, behind that is that, um, well, there's only certain things. Satan can't mimic everything, and he can't hide his cloven feet. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, newsflash, Medjugorje is not of God. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't even have time. Just look up E. Michael Jones. He's the be best one to look up. E. Michael Jones, uh, he's got, I think, two or three interviews with... Um, don't look him up on uh, Fatima, but look him up on Medjugorje. <laughs> yeah, he's an expert on Medjugorje, for sure. Yeah. Excellent. Well, let, let's pray. Let's offer our Father uh, to take the message of Fatima into your daily lives. We didn't even apply it very much today, but... This is what we tried to do before we started Lent, which was to focus on the true crusade, because that's really what Fatima, it just in a, in a general context, Fatima gives us the true crusade. While all these nations are fighting the false crusade of the petty earthly city, just simply trying to self-aggrandize their economic interests, mm -hmm. Fatima gives us the true crusade, which is against the world, the flesh, and the devil yeah. for the sake of souls. Yeah. So let's operate our fire. Nomine Patris, Fidei Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater Noster, qui es in Jedi, Sancti Vigeto, Nomen Tuum, Adveniet Regnum Tuum, Fiat Voluntas Tua, Sicut in Cielo, et in Terra. Pare Nostrum Cotidianum da Nobis Odie, et dimenti Nobis de Vita Nostra, Sicut et Nostimitimus de Vitoribus Nostri, sed ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos amalo. Amen. Nomine Patris, Fidei Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us.